You know, this morning as I walked in, I was standing here in a pew, and uh, one of the brothers of the church came up to me and went, 30, 60, 100. And if you were here last week, you might understand that. And I want to just tell you, on behalf of uh, the brothers that have the privilege and maybe the responsibility of sharing the word, that's a big encouragement. I think if you talk to any one of us, you will not find a confidence. You will find a heart of insufficiency, a unworthiness, and a little bit of encouragement like that. Just praise God. So thank, thank the Lord for that and the emails this week and others. Let's turn to the Father one more time in prayer. Dear God, we come to you. And in the title of our discussion today, Lord, we are thinking of the situations we find ourselves in. And we come to you, Lord, and we ask that we can today confess where we are individually, the situations we find ourselves in, and we can turn to you and see that you are the one and the only and the complete solution. Lord, we ask to be transformed. We ask to see you in a fresh and miraculous way. We ask nothing less because we know you would want nothing less. Assist us in these things, Father. In your name we do pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus, in the little bit that he, we have recorded of Jesus in his life, he talked about tax collectors? You would think that might come up maybe one time, but it's come up more than once. And in our discussion today, I think it, it's helpful to take a look at a few. If you'd like to write these down, go ahead. Um, I want us just to, just to take a look at a few. Matthew five forty six. Some of you might like, like to write them down. For if you love those who love you, what rewards do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus, given his message, giving it out, talking about loving your enemies and using tax collectors... As an example, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, Jesus calls one of his disciples, calls Matthew the disciple. And as Jesus passed from here, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow him. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined At a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. If you look in Luke, turn a couple books to your right. Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling another parable. A parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Just a couple verses. Verse 11 of chapter 18. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. A few verses ahead, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Luke chapter 19, just one more chapter, Jesus is now entering Jericho, and he was passing through in verse 1 and verse 2, and there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And what did Jesus say to him in verse 5? And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him, because Zacchaeus was up in a tree. Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay 
at your house today? Now, does, is Jesus just infatuated with IRS agents or got some issue here? Or is there some particular reason that tax collectors keep coming up? Tax collector this, tax collector that, sinner this, sinner that. The answer comes a bit when we understand the context. Tax collectors in that day were seen as the chief traitors to the community. The community of the Hebrews was taken over by the Romans. The Romans were in charge. And the Romans wanted a tax. And they used the locals, the brothers and the cousins, to get the tax to Rome. So you had individuals who knew that if they were taking the tax here and giving it up to Rome, they were in effect persecuting their brethren. But it was much worse because those that wanted to do this job did it because they could also be thieves. You were able to charge more, to extort more, and have the power and the muscle of the Roman Empire to say, if we need 10%, go ahead and get 15. You've got our muscle. Who's going to back you up? You get rich from your own people in licensed stealing. Traitors and thieves. The reason Jesus spoke so much about the traitors and the thieves, the tax collectors, is because Jesus came to save sinners and to save the lost. And therefore, these are synonymous. This is who he came to get. Our text today is in Luke chapter 15. We're spending three weeks in parables. Today we are starting another parable in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Most likely the most well-known of all of Jesus' parables. But look how it starts out. Chapter 15 is kind of unique. We need to read the first two verses to see how it's unique. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. In verse 1, these sinners, these tax collectors, were all drawing near to him. Now Jesus was having a message of righteousness, a message of his uniqueness. But the tax collectors and the sinners were being drawn to him. He was still attractive to them. Now, what did the religious elite say? The religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled. They were murmuring. They were saying, this man who is a rabbi receives sinners and he eats with them. So that is how Luke chapter 15 starts. You know how it finishes? With three parables. Jesus gives the same answer three times. Because the chapter starts, he gives them the answer three times. He gives it in three parables. The parables of a lost sheep, the parable of a lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. Look at in verse 3. So he, meaning Jesus, told them this parable. Based on what they said, so he told them this parable, the parable of the lost sheep. Look at verse 8. Or what woman 
having 10 silver coins. So, or, and where we're starting today in verse 11, and he said. He's giving them three examples. Let's see what's going on here. We have three characters today, three main characters in Jesus' parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose And he came to his father. We have the younger son in this story. We have a father and we have two sons. We have an older son and a younger son. And this is the younger son. Not not too surprising, is it, that the younger son says, Hey, I need more. I need to do some stuff. But we have some symbolism here. The younger son is symbolizing the tax collectors and the sinners. So what does he do? And the younger of them said to his father, verse 12, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He's very proud. He's idealistic. Not very reverent. Definitely thinking about material things. Give me what is mine. In the culture here, it would have had about a third share. The older son would have had about a two-third share. And he said, you know what? I don't want to really wait until father passes. I kind of want it now. I might be in my teenage years here. Can I have it now? He might have had a slightly less than his third share, and he wants to move on. And so he does. His father gives it to him, which is probably an interesting story in and of itself. The father giving it to him. And he divided his property between them. And then not many days, so he got able to get some liquid net worth here. And he says, all right. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, put it in his knapsacks, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Got what he wanted. Idealistic. This is going to be great. I'm sure he encountered a lot of friends had a lot of fun, and was extremely reckless with his life. 
looking at a very surface life, the things that seem fun, the things that seem pleasurable, the things that money could buy, he went after. And as such is the case when we have no wisdom, but when we have dollars, they tend to go through our hands very, very quickly. And the young man found himself like, I thought I had more. Where did it all go? I had some fun, but it's, that seems like that was last week. What do I do now? And isn't things about timing? Right about this time, a severe famine comes into the land. Right when you're out of money, it's hard to get a job. And there's not a lot of free food. And people that used to be generous were a little less generous. And you're like, well, I didn't plan on that. If I'd have known that, yeah, I know, you didn't plan on that. But that's the reality. And now we got a problem. Tries to hire himself out, will do anything. Getting low and getting low fast. Remember, this is supposed to be a symbolism of the tax collectors and the sinners. He hires himself out. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Let's hear that again. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Being a good Hebrew, he would have had nothing to do with pigs. Being a boy just a year or so ago, he would have had nothing to do with the servants of the pigs. Today, he's longing to eat of the pods that the pigs eat. How far has he fallen? How does he view himself now? What comes next? But when he came to himself, so here's a key point for us, right? We look for key points. Key point in the first character, we typically come to ourselves when we get to the end of ourself. When there is much of us left, we don't get to where God wants us to get. God is there at the end of ourself. When the young man got to the end, when he was broken, when he had nothing left, when he was morally, physically, spiritually, and financially bankrupt, then he started to have some lucid thinking, some clear thoughts, and he actually had one of his first good ideas in a long time. A little application for ourselves. Be thankful when the storms come that bring us into bankruptcy. That is where God can and will use us. So he gets up, but when he came to himself, I will go to my father's house. In verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father's house. Many of us kind of sometimes get stuck. I want to highlight verse 20. We get stuck in the idea of it. You know what? You know, I should go back to my father's house. You know, uh, my father's you know, servants have more than enough, etc. I'm going to go back. I'm going to tell him this. I'm going to confess this to him. That's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to do it maybe tomorrow. 
The key is in the verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. How many of us are finding ourselves in the middle of some bad decisions? Far along the road of bankruptcy, emotionally, maybe spiritually, perhaps financially. God is ready to use us there. What situation are you in that you need some help with? That you wish you could adjust, that you could change? The young son gave us an example to turn back to the father, confess our sin, and go to him. But the story moves along. In verse 20, let's read just a little bit. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, and the son said to him Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The father, it's a very simple symbolism. The father here symbolizes God the father, the triune God, father, son, and Holy Spirit and how he behaves and how he acts and what Jesus was here to do with the tax collectors and the sinners. So let us look at what Jesus was trying to say. What was he saying? What, what clues did he give us about the Father and the Father's heart? And he arose and he came to his Father, but while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. What is he telling us is while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him. So this is a son who was gone. This is a son who demanded an affront to the father, say, give me my inheritance. I don't want it from you, old man. I want it now. The blessings that you have in my life, the stuff that you've given me, thanks a lot, father. I want to do it my way. It's mine. Goes away. Who knows what he did with it? But while he's a long way off, He's not nearby. He's not knocking on the door. While he's a long way off, the father sees him. He's looking for him. Takeaway point for us, number two. God is looking for the bankrupt. He's looking for us when we turn back to him. When we're a couple hills still far away, he's got the binoculars out, if you will, and he is physically standing at the window looking for us. It would make sense, wouldn't it, that when God sees us coming back, that God would do one of these? If you're listening on the CD, I'm making some ridiculous. God does not stand and say, let me see if you're going to make it all the way back. 
You're about 100 paces away. All right, 80, you're doing good. 50, keep coming. One step away, knock. Knock, get on your knees. When God sees us coming, he's looking, and what does he do? He runs. I am not aware. If you're aware, let me know. I am not aware of another place in Scripture where it says that God runs. God is the father of all time. God who is above time. God who does not have to move fast or slow. He moves as is and time moves around him. He's giving us a vision here that God's got his track shoes on and he is running to us. He not only sees us, but he runs to us. To the broken son who deserves nothing, God runs to me. And when he gets to me, He's hugging me, and he keeps hugging me, and he's kissing me. You know that picture of grandma when it comes and kissing and hugging and kissing and hussing to the point where you're like, okay. Hugging and embracing and kissing. This is how God reacts to a lost son or daughter. Turn with me, 1 John, it's toward the end of your Bibles, or just write it down. 1 John 1.9, a key life verse and a verse that applies very significantly for us here. Because as God comes to him, the son is coming back, the son does what he wanted to do, what he was convicted to do. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In 1 John 1.9 it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Write that one down. God is a big fan of confession. God is not shocked or surprised. Sometimes we, we kind of think that when we confess our sin to God, he's going to go, oh, that's it, I, I did not know that. That surprises me. He is fully aware. Because in the picture we have here, the son goes away and he does a lot of stuff. And the father, physically separated by time and space, can't see. He can guess. He can think. He knew what it's like to be a teenager with a lot of money. And when he sees him coming back, he can own picture of what might have happened. But it's a little different. The analogy kind of doesn't hold as it sometimes doesn't in a parable. In a human story of earthly, earthly story of heavenly things. The reality is our God knows It was as if the Father was with us, walking around, seeing everything. So what we confess is confession for us, not news to God. Because we view God the way we view humanity sometimes, we think he's going to be surprised. And we think he's going to be shocked. But he's not. What is the response of God when we confess because 1 John 1, 9 says, and he will be faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A very theological way of putting it. 
Confession equals forgiveness equals a cleansing to righteousness. Powerful, wonderful, fantastic. But the parable gives it to us kind of in a picture, in a story, in an action. And it does it this way. He's confessing. He confesses that all I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. It's almost as if the father didn't hear him. He's, he's just like, I'm glad you said that. It's important that you came to that point. No, what does he do? But the father said to the servants, he doesn't even reply to the son. He's, he's finishing confessing, and he goes to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. After the confession, he's preparing, he's preparing a party. He is already celebrating. The robe is really a symbol of being the guest of honor. The ring, a symbol of authority. And the shoes, a symbol, if you will, of a son. Many of the servants and slaves would not have worn shoes, and the son was coming without shoes. And he says, let's get the fattened calf, and let's celebrate. There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that does what? Finish it for me. And the congregation said, repents. Over one sinner that repents. Isn't that an amen? Amen. What kind of confession? The confession was, gave a, gave a symbol for us here of confession. I have sinned against two. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my father. And I am not worthy to be called your son. That is the type of confession we need. Whatever situation you and I find ourselves in, it is that type of confession. I've sinned against you primarily, vertically, often horizontally against others, but it's always against God first. And I am not worthy. I am not here because I am worthy. I was listening to uh, some hymns this morning, and I was listening to To God Be the Glory, and the verse that came up, so I had to write it down. Because To God Be the Glory, the second stanza hits this uh, entire idea. When we come to confession, when we come and we confess to God, 1 John 1, 9, and hear what happens, the writer of the hymn said it this way, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives the vilest offender who truly believes in that moment a pardon from Jesus receives how good is it to know that if we come to Jesus and confess our sins our brokenness our bankruptcy that in that moment we have his promise we have his assurance he's not going to go let me hear it first and then I'll let you know that one, that one I can't forgive. That's a little out. That's a little further than I'm comfortable with. Every single time, if we confess and we believe in Jesus and we look to him and it's a real deal, he will forgive us and we will receive a pardon just like the Father acted like here. It would seem like and in our worlds, and if I'm writing the story, right, it might end right here. 
We had a father, we had a son, the son doesn't behave well, the son comes back, there's repentance, story ends well, put a bow around it and say, okay, but who are we still missing? The older son, right? The diligent one, the, the firstborn, doing all the right things. The firstborn is getting things done, the firstborn is executing properly, we not, not even have a really mention of them. We got the young son. We're always talking about the baby of the family out there doing who knows what, and the baby's coming back. Well, here we go. Let's get to the, to the older one, the second son. Right in the midst of the celebration going, now his older son was in the field, right? He's there working. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He was angry. And he refused to go in. Now his father came out and he entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So who does the older brother symbolize? The religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. Those who were doing the religious things, those who were about religious tasks, those who were attempting to follow the law, perfectly, and in their own mind, had done so, perfectly, very often. He asks, what's going on? He sees this party. The servant tells him, and his reaction is anger. He's not happy. My young brother goes away, and he puts some aspersions on him. Isn't it like us when we're, when we're uh, angry? Nowhere in this account do we have a record. He hasn't even seen the brother yet. He said he wasted all the money with prostitutes. He has, didn't even know he's back, didn't even see him yet, hasn't even talked to him, but he knows exactly what he did. And it's not something that lifts up his character. It's something that destroys his character. So he's throwing aspersions on him. He's throwing, obviously, what's in his own heart, too. Well, if I had money and I was gone away, I know what I would do. But he's throwing it out, shows how angry he is, how violently angry, willing to even destroy, doesn't care, gives no respect, doesn't even speak to him as father. And he says, this son of yours. And he refuses to go in. On what basis would he be so angry and think he has a right to refuse to go in when his brother came home, who could have been dead 
who could have been destroyed, who never maybe would have seen from again. Apparently, that's what he was hoping for. It's not going to take any more of his estate. The older brothers already has two-thirds. What would make him so angry? We have a clue in verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In his mind, he had never disobeyed his father. Can we just say a, yeah, right, to that, really? Seriously. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you're just amazing. You're the only teenage boy in the history of mankind who never disobeyed your father. And if you didn't do it verbally, really, in your mind, I'm doing this, but oh, yeah, this is ridiculous. I'm so upset at you. You're mumbling and grumbling against the father. Look what he's doing right here. Father's throwing a party, amazing amount of disrespect. Complete disrespect, and he doesn't even see it. He, right here in this moment, is viewing himself as righteous and perfect and always acting appropriate, completely to authority, his own father. He's blind to his own sin. He sees himself as so righteous, so good, that he can't even comprehend how we can throw a party to this one. The difference between me and him is so great I cannot comprehend how you can love him. Remember, this is the religious elite, and if you will, at times, bringing it up to today, in quotes, the physical church. Not the universal church that is acting in God's grace and and, and rightfully so, but the church that many that are not believers view as hypocritical. They would see this story, and they would say, Yeah, that makes sense. So righteous, so good, can't even comprehend. He couldn't see his own sin. He wanted justice and not mercy. The younger son wanted mercy and not justice. So how does that work for us? How does that apply to us? The religious church, again, the church in quotes, a couple thoughts for you. At times, in the church, we can become this way. We can accidentally start acting more like the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's a thought for you. Does the church, and by that I mean I, do I ever make it more difficult to repent and to obtain my forgiveness than God himself does? Do I ever make it more difficult to repent and obtain forgiveness than God himself does? Very often, we do. The church is notorious for putting up barriers and making it difficult to confess sin. In my life in church, I know of many people who have quit coming to a church and have moved on because they were afraid to confess their sin and how they would be treated. They were quicker to go to God than they would to go to another believer. 
Have you ever seen a little bit of the, how did you get yourself in that situation? Yeah, a, a little bit of the, well now, that's, wow. I'm surprised after the way you were raised. Are we the type of people that somebody would feel comfortable confessing their sin to? Would they find healing and grace and forgiveness the one they're going to find with God? They're going to have to deal with their own issues. You spend all your money, it's gone. I can't necessarily give it back. You may have created some issues in your life. You may have created some heart attacks. You may have created all kinds of issues. Your sin is expensive, and I cannot always fix that. But I can live the way Christ lived and offer forgiveness. There are times in the church where we are offended. I'm going to speak a little bluntly to those of us who are heavy, heavy, hard workers in the church who've been around all the time. I'm in Sunday school. I'm cleaning the yard. I'm doing this. I'm everywhere. I'm tithing and this and that. And when we have a baptism, it's all the noise about this person. Do you know what that person was doing for the last year? We may not say it, but there's sometimes, deep down, there's a feeling of, yeah, I'm happy for him, but seriously, they were doing all kinds of stuff. We haven't thrown a party for me in a long time. I'm here every week and all the time. Satan wants to get us there. Our nature wants to go there. We need God's grace to help us have the compassion and to celebrate the ones of us that are lost and to come back. To have the joy to literally be jumping up and down, if you will, for a sinner that repents. I am so thankful. Again, we're speaking openly here, right? It's just us. Uh, We're speaking openly. When we do baptisms, we kind of make a big deal about them, right? We kind of make a big deal. Amen. I think we should make a bigger deal. We should make it as big a deal as we possibly can because it was made a big deal in this parable. A sinner has come home and making a public testimony of their brokenness, of their bankruptcy, and the church should be going, yeah. Amen. And not going, oh, yeah, where's mine? We're going to have to pray for that heart, though, because it's a natural heart when we're doing things and we're tasking things and we're executing things and we're consistently doing things when we don't feel like doing things and we're the only one doing things and the other people that should be doing things are leaving or this or that or not here or not doing things and are out sinning in this and I saw them somewhere when I shouldn't see them. Hmm. When a sinner comes home, amen, looking for him, finding him, We, as longer-term believers, I wrote this down in my notes because it hit me hard this week. We, as longer-term believers, we're the ones who struggle with this more, not the newer believers. They kind of get this. They're like, what are you, what, what's your, how could that ever happen? Yeah. Don't learn from us. Learn from the Father, but listen as we speak. We, as longer-term believers, need to have a constant and a fresh sense of the depth of our sin and live a life of repentance not a one-time act of repentance. We need a life of repentance. 
I don't think he's here. I think uh, Brother Mark Kuyper's in Sunday school. But he said something to me. I wouldn't be surprised if he read it once. We were sitting having a conversation, and Mark said to me, Stan, as we get older in our life, and if, if you apply older too, and we get closer and closer to God's word and the knowledge of who God is, there's one big fact that keeps coming up. Our sin nature. The closer we get to God, the depravity and the wickedness and the sin that's inside should be getting greater. So a question for all of us, right? We're going to, we leave here with a question. Is the sense of your sin, and by the grace of God, there go I, increasing in your life, or is it the other way, the self-righteousness and the pride increasing? That's a very, very important question. The closer we get to God, the more we should be inclined to fall on our knees and see how deep and how ugly our sin is. That is a way to test our maturity. If I'd sit here and talk about a sinner and a vile sinner and a gross sinner and the things that are so difficult, are we thinking of somebody else or are we thinking of ourselves? It's a test too. As we conclude, I want to read Matthew 9. This is so exciting, so encouraging. It's the things that we know, that we forget that we know, and that we need reminded that can be so powerful. Who was one of Jesus' disciples? Matthew. What was Matthew's occupation? Anyone? Tax collector. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Christ, for one of his own disciples, is pulling out a tax collector. Isn't that just like Jesus? I don't need the best of the best. I need the worst of the worst to follow me. Because that highlights my grace. And he arose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now picture this. He's calling Matthew, calls a disciple, the chief of sinners. This is what's getting everybody in a huff in the whole community. So not only is he calling Matthew to follow him as a tax collector, he's constantly accused of eating with these kind of people. What do we find out? Matthew follows him, starts telling everyone that evening what's going on. He's got a house full. He's got a whole house full of tax collectors and sinners. And there's Jesus reclining, hanging out with them. Mind-boggling situation. Picture the church in that situation. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciple, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Please explain this to us because we can't think of a good reason. But when he heard it, Jesus himself said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, this quote. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners.
in our conclusion, let's recap what we have here. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God wants you and I to acknowledge our sin. If you have never come to Jesus, if you have never been able to come to the point and say, I see it, I've been running, I'm fighting, I'm carrying this battle, I'm carrying this burden, I'm trying to act good, I'm trying to believe, but I know something's wrong. I can feel it. That is Jesus calling you. Lay it down. Confess your sin. Turn to him, and he will forgive, and he will restore. If you've been going along as a believer for a long time, if you've been walking along and thinking that your repentance and your confession of sin was a one-time thing, and you're struggling and you're wondering why we don't have victory, you're, you're struggling with, what am I supposed to do with this? It's very simple. Confess it. Ask God, show me like David did, any wickedness in me. Look into the mirror of his word. Let it be a law to us and say, Lord, I see it. I see my wickedness. I see my darkness. Don't let me say I never committed adultery. Have you thought on a woman? Don't say I never said this. I never murdered anyone. Do you have any hatred towards anybody? Have you ever had any slander or the gossip or the hurt or the pain and the materialism and all of these things? Look in my heart, Lord, confess it. The pride that is so easily besetting us, Lord, I confess it. Heal me. Confess it. Point two, stay broken. Stay broken. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God is not interested in our sacrifices. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. He owns you and I. He is interested in people that want mercy and not justice. Stay broken. And number three, seek the broken. A tax collector by that evening had a bunch of tax collectors and a bunch of sinners, and he got them all in one place. The church should be full of sinners. Our houses should be full of sinners. We already got a couple. We already got me there. We're on off to a good start. We need more. Be broken and go find the broken. The church is not pure because of the church. The church is pure because God looks at us through the one who is pure. Our Savior, our Lord, our Master, Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the parable of the lost son. Can we kneel and give glory to God in prayer? Father God, we seek to adore you because your love is unending. No matter how many times we have failed you, no matter how many times we've defamed your name, when there are hundreds of things on that side of the equation, all you require is one on the other side, that we turn to you, confess, and look to you as our Savior. Look to your holiness. Look to your love. Lord, I'm so thankful that your love doesn't stop one day short of my life 
and one moment short of my need. Each and every one of us here, Lord, need your love. We confess, I confess, Lord, that I am a sinner saved by grace. Do not leave me, Lord, in my sin. Raise me up into a life of victory, a life that the world can see, that can have the power of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. To get to the resurrection, all of this progress, Lord, begin with us telling the truth that we are sinners and that we need your grace. Lord, I thank you for each and every one here that we can help each other, that we can confess to each other, and that we can look to you. Lord, in that we ask. This is so against our character. We cannot do it unless you do it for us. And we're begging you, Lord, do a miracle here for your honor, your glory, and your sake. In whose name we pray, amen.